at the seventh verse. And feel free to follow along in a Bible you brought yourself or one in the pews, or, um, or just feel free to listen. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearance of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for whom, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which you have been in, has been entrusted to you. Father God, I am thankful that you have given us a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. Lord, that we need not be timid or ashamed of the gospel. And Lord, I pray that um, you would reveal to each and every person the plan you have for them, their specific calling. And I pray that, that all of us, when, as this world gets darker and darker and crazier and crazier, that we'll be seen as lights of sanity and salvation that they, people will want to know where our joy comes from when everything's falling apart. Thank you, Lord, that um, giving us this opportunity to worship you in music, in the reading of your word, and the preaching of the same. I thank you for our pastor, Steve, who loves you, who loves your word, and who loves us. I pray that you'd put in his mind and his heart what you'd have him teach us, and that we would have ears to hear and take to heart uh, what he has to teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you all this morning, this Lord's Day. Finishing off the month, as they say, the weather, people say, the hottest July on record. Thankfully, we should be always thankful. I've talked about this, but sometimes it's difficult it is so hot, but we continue on here for the Lord. You know, we live in the information age. You all, I think, understand that, and there's so much information, especially with the Internet. You can access about anything you want all over the world at any time of the day. But, of course, the most important information is God's Word, and, and, and that's what's exciting. That's what's encouraging because we can get lost in this world of information. We must always stick to this Word. I was listening to a person, a well-known person, doing a podcast yesterday, uh, about in the afternoon, and, and he was going on, and he was talking about the Gospel of Mark. I said, well, this is interesting. And he was talking about how the Gospel of Mark is, is a book of action, and it really is. More than any of the Gospels, it's action. He says, it's action, action, action. But you know what his whole point was? 
well, we, we really need to take action in the whole political thing. You know, we need, as Kurt Servos did, to really get going here. We need action, action, action. And, oh, golly, I said, he's really missed the point. Uh, Mark 1.15, probably, I would say, maybe the best theme verse of the whole Gospel of Mark, says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what Mark's about. It's not about action, per se. It's about the gospel, and that's the message. Repent and believe in the gospel, and that's our message today, the gospel. And we're looking at this message because it is the most important message in the whole world. We've been looking at a number of verses here in Luke and John these last few weeks and focusing on the truth of the gospel. And we're doing this, we're doing this because more than any other message, you need to understand the gospel message. It's foundational for yourself and for other believers and just the fact that it's continually under attack, always under attack. We need to know what it says, and there is so, so much. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. And, and we're going a little slower than I thought, but that's fine. Um, you, go, you go from the Gospel of Luke, which is much more about what God is doing, Christ is doing, and you go to the Gospel of John, it's a lot more theology. There's a lot more truth here. And in some ways, you have to slow up then because what's being said. And, and you look at the Gospel of John, and there's a lot more here what Jesus is saying. You look at the, if you have a red letter edition, you can see in all these red letters, Jesus is talking a lot. And it's a very important and foundational truth. Let's start with verses 14 and 15, uh, John 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will, will in him have eternal life. And this is the story. At the time of Moses, the, the Jews were complaining. They were grumbling about different things. And so God sent all these fiery serpents in the camp. Could you imagine what that was like? all these snakes around, and they were biting the people, and, and many were dying, and so they were getting upset, and, and God, of course, told then Moses, he says, okay, okay, we'll do something about this. So he says, make this, this, this replica, uh, this bronze serpent, and, and the people that look, look at it are there by then, as they look at it, are ones who are acknowledging their guilt and their faith in God then, and they will be physically healed and forgiven of their sins. So that's the whole story here. That's what happened. And the snake says here in John 3, 3, 14, 15, being lift up, lifted up is a picture of, of Christ uh, being lifted up on the cross. And Christ being lifted up means that he was crucified for our sins because that's what happened. People were crucified on the cross, and Christ must be lifted up because that's the way that he paid for our sins. He was our substitute. He died in our place. This substitutionary atonement, this truth of this is so, so important where you should have died for your own sin, Christ died for you. And we sang that song, Jesus paid it all. That's indeed what he did. And whoever then looks in faith to Christ, whoever believes then that he is the means of salvation, and the only means of salvation then is forgiven of their sins and, and is one who receives eternal life. John 12, turn there. John 12, 32 It says, and I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. We understand that we need to believe in Christ to be saved, to be forgiven. But before that, what we see, we understand, is that God, through Christ, draws us to himself. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We said that God chose us before this world was ever made. God foreknew us. He predestined us. And then he brought us into the world. We were physically born. And then during our life, he called us 
That's what happened. He called us, which means he was actively then drawing us to himself. That's what it means. He was working in our heart. And if you're saved here today, there, there had to have been some point in time where you could just sense much more the working of God in your heart in terms of understanding this truth of the gospel and salvation, your need to put your trust in Christ. And so that's what this drawing is. And, and drawing then leads to him then enabling us to, to repent of our sins and to put our faith in Christ. That's what we understand about this. It says in John 6, 44, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Very, very clear about God's sovereignty. No one can believe in Christ unless the Father is the one who draws him, is one who's working in his heart. Now, John 3.16, this explains and expounds more on what we were talking about in verses 14 and 15. John 3.16 It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. As you all know, this is one of the most famous and well-known verses in the Bible. You hear it quoted and stated all over the world. And, and I want to work carefully through this. We're going to spend probably about two-thirds of our time on this one verse alone because there's so much that it has to say about salvation. And so the verse starts off with... God, for God. And we, of course, must understand that the plan of salvation is God's idea. It's what God wants to do. It's the only way, then, that we can be saved. And, and, and there's no other way to be saved but by what God does through the work of Christ on the cross and through the work of the Spirit in our hearts. That's simply how it takes place. It says God so loved the world, that is his motivation in wanting to save people, is that he loved us. Romans chapter 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Ephesians 1, 5, it says, in love, God predestined us. Romans eight twenty nine for those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And I talked about this a few weeks back, this truth of God foreknowing us. That means he knew about us in an intimate way. It's not just head knowledge. He knew about us and wanted to save us and was thinking about it. And it's a word that expresses his eternal love for us. That's, that's what it is. This, again, this motivation that he had to want to save us. And, and God didn't love us because we loved him. We were sinners, right? We were enemies of God. We were ones who had turned against God. We did not deserve to be saved. Uh, not at all, but God loved us anyway. And this love is vast. It's a vast love. I mean, we talk about love, and there's one of the most common themes in movies and stories and in, 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 in our culture is this word love, but, but it's so different than what we're talking about here. It's vast. It's, it's, it's a wonderful love. It's a personal love that we're talking about here. It's an incredible love. It's a love that's incomprehensible, and that's true for each one of you. You can say you know that God loves you, and you should say that, and you should believe that, and you should bathe in that love every day of the week, but you, you really don't comprehend it. I, I just have to say that. And, and understanding his love is going to be an eternal process in terms of God wanting you to see more and more how much he loves you. Then we say God loved the world, and this, ter- this word world is a term for humanity in a general sense. Okay, the term, It's a term for all kinds of people people from all 
kinds of countries and all kinds of cities. It's, it's speaking of people who are rich or poor or young or old or married or single or black or white. That's what we're talking about. It's talking about a world of sinners. God lo- so loved this world of, of sinful people. And then it says, and God gave us his only son. And so we understand. We've talked about these things before. But salvation is a free gift from God. It's a free gift from Jesus Christ through the Spirit. And there's nothing that you need to do to be saved. Nothing that you can do to be saved. Nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. It's a gift. And it costs you nothing. That's the whole point. But what does it cost God? What did it cost Christ? It cost Christ his life. It cost God his son. And, of course, we know that God raised his son from the dead. But the cost was infinite. We all understand the value of something you buy. You know, you buy certain things you pay a lot of money for. Well, that's really important, you know, whatever it might be. Whether it's your new car or whatever, you know, it's, it's important. But here we're talking about the value of what Christ did for us, the fact that Christ paid his life to take care of our sins means what we have, this salvation from God, is infinitely valuable. And we need to see that. Again, you all have things in your house and yard. You've got lots. Of, we all have quite a bit of things as Americans here. We all understand that. But this relationship with Christ, as it says in Psalm 119, verse 57, the Lord is my portion. He is mine, and I'm his, and I have this relationship with him. That, that's that's what's, what's really important there. God sent his only begotten son into an evil world, one with whom then he is well pleased, one with whom he highly exalted and will continue to exalt in the years and ages to come. It says, whoever, whoever believes in him will be saved and receive eternal life. That is, the salvation is offered to a world of, of sinners, and it is important for you to have this in your own mind when you think about the unsaved. is because, again, we can sometimes categorize. We look at them and, well, should I share the gospel with that person? Oh, they look like they might need all oh, that person. Whoever, get out of your mind that you're the person to decide. Whoever, and you don't know whoever is. You don't know who that whoever's going to be. You just have to share the gospel. That's your job and trust God to do the, the work, to do the rest. Then it says you need to believe in him. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this word believe. What does the word believe mean? First, this word believe has three components. Some might say more, some might say less. I'm going to say there's three. There's the cognitive, the mental. It means you know the truth in your mind. You know the truth about God and Christ and sin and salvation. You know it. You understand it. But a person can have this cognitive understanding, this knowledge in his head about Christ and salvation, but not be saved. Okay? That's the first point. The second one is, is, a, is a real critical point. It's a spiritual component, uh, and it, it basically uh, you know, means that, that, that you, you're, you're believing in your heart. You're believing in your soul. You're deep, believing in the deepest part of your, 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 your spirit that this is the Christ. You believe it. You really trust. With your mind, with your heart, that's what's going on. And finally, then, there's a relational component. You're believing in a person. You're believing in a person. You're trusting in the person of Jesus Christ. So three components, mental, spiritual, and this relational or personal. That's the first point, these components. The second point is this. You need to believe. That means you need to trust. It means you need to rely. You need to depend on Christ alone. It's not a matter, salvation is not a matter of trusting in yourself and in Christ. And I say that because that's how I was raised, the church I grew up in. 
is they would say, you know, you ask them, do you need to believe in Christ? Which, you know, is a simple thing we might ask a person. Hey, do you believe in Christ to save? Oh, yes, I'm, well, he's saved. They would say you need to believe in yourself in, in the sense that you have to do some good works. You need to believe that you are doing the good works to be saved. And you're believing in Christ. That's not the gospel. It is not you and Christ. It is not me plus Christ. That is not it at all. It's, it's trusting in Christ alone. Third, you need to believe in him. You need to believe in, in the person of Jesus Christ and who he is, that he is God in the flesh, that he is both God and man, that he is the Savior, the Messiah. And you need to believe what he did, that is, he died on the cross to pay for your sins, was raised from the dead, thereby getting the victory over your sin and over death. That's what he did. That you believe, then, fourth point, means you're not believing in someone else or something else to save you, not believing in some other person or some other being or some angel to save you. You're not believing in yourself. I've mentioned Psalm 49, which talks about there's no amount of money that you can pay for somebody else for their salvation. I talked to you about how in the Catholic faith they have their little candles in the back of the church, and you know, and somebody's passed away, you light that little candle and you say a prayer, and that's going to help them get out of purgatory, get to heaven faster. That's not it. It's not by anybody, any other being. It's you're only saved by believing in Jesus Christ alone. Next point is this. Believing in Christ, on one hand, is simple. It's just believing in him. God didn't want to make salvation hard or difficult. It's, it's not the kind of thing where you need to follow all these rules. Here's ten rules, and you follow these ten rules, you'll be saved. Or do all these different things. Do these ten things, and, and you'll be saved. That's not it. It's not a matter of it taking all this time to be saved. That is not it. Not it at all. It's just a matter of Christ saving you. That's it. You know, I, I, sometimes I'll talk to people, and I believe it's true, and they would say, I was saved when I was five years old. The point is the gospel can be simple enough for a five-year-old to understand it. Five-year-olds can understand that they're sinners. They can understand that there's a Jesus person who took care of their sin, who died for their sin. And so it's simple enough for anybody, anybody, to be saved, and it's important to understand that. Next, believing in Christ and receiving eternal life takes place at a point in time. Some people believe that you can be saved by doing all these good works during the course of your life on this earth. Maybe you've gone to a funeral, a memorial service, and you're talking to somebody, and, and, and you know that the person, you're pretty positive that the person who died is in the casket there, or maybe is that he was cremated, not saved. You're pretty certain. But they're talking there, oh yeah, he was a good person, and and he did a lot of good things. You've heard that, haven't you? Haven't you heard that? You all have heard that. Oh, he was a good person. He did a, 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 you know, and I know a lot of good people in life, but I think a lot of quote, I say quote good people aren't saved because they're not putting their trust in Christ. It's, it's not it. Salvation is not by any good things that you do, and that is so, so, so common. You believe in Christ to save you? And it takes place at a point in time. The word believe, in fact, turn to John 5, 24. I, I like how this verse says, I believe it makes this point about as clear as any. That is, you're believing in Christ at a point in time. John 5, 24. We're, looking at, we're focusing here on the verbs. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears. Hears is what tense? What tense? Present. Present. 
hears my word and believes. Believes is what tense. Present. Who believes him who sent me has. What's has? Present tense. Hears, believes, has. Present tense. Saved at a point in time. As soon as you believe, at that point in time you're saved, that's when your eternal life begins. It's sort of like I think of God being a line. You know, you remember geometry? He had the arrow on the one side, the arrow on the other, and that's the line. Then you have line segments where there's a dot here and a dot there. Then you have a ray. And so our life's like a ray. And that day we're saved, that's where that dot's at, and then it goes on forever. Okay, that's it. That's what we're talking about. It begins at that point in time, a very specific point in time. I, I love this truth. It is so, so clear. And there's other verses that say really the, the, the same thing about this. And so we're saved at a point in time. Next, believing in Christ means you're also believing in the Father, the one who sent the Son. This is an important truth. You don't hear people talking about it as much. Go back to John 3.16. We'll read that again. And, and what you see, and I'm just going to share these two verses. There are so many, and I'll share a few more later that talk about how God and Christ are working together, okay? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he sent, gave his only begotten Son. What did God do? He sent his Son. And you need to believe who it says, whoever believes in him, believing in Christ. John five twenty four. Note what it says here. Very, very interesting. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me. So who you believe in there? You're believing him who sent me. You're believing the Father. You see what I'm saying? Christianity is unique. It's not just, I'm believing in God. No, you're believing in Christ. You're believing in the Father who sent him. That is what is taking place. You have the Father and the Son, and they are the Father and the Son, they are perfectly united. They have the same character. They have the same purpose. And if you believe in the Father, you believe in the Son, you believe in the Son, you believe in the Father, that's how it goes. Let me look at some other verses. Turn to John chapter 8. Just, we'll just flip through a few here real quick to see this picture. John eight nineteen. They're testifying, saying to him, where's your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor your Father. If you knew me, you'd know my Father also. See what it does there? If you knew me, you'd know my Father. We go together. Continue on, verse um, 28 and 29, same chapter. Jesus said, When you lift up the Son, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Isn't that amazing? I do nothing unless the Father told me to do it. Then we have verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing him. Again, this relationship between the Father and the Son. And finally, one last verse, 42, same chapter. says, Jesus said, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Then you have John 14, verse 9. This is powerful. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Of course, people that are so literal don't understand what's going on. I mean, yes, they're two distinct beings. We have the Trinity, of course. But they have the same essence. They have the same character and purpose. You see, that's, that's, that's what's happening here. Next, there's two things a person needs to be saved is to repent 
of his sins and believe in Christ. And we talked about this a few weeks ago and made this very clear. It so, so intrigues me that you go to the Gospel of Luke and it's repent, 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 and you're saved. John, is, it's believe, believe. You know the word believe or believes or believed appears 98 times in the Gospel of John. That's the focus, believe, believe. He who believes in me, or he who believed in me is saved. That's, that's what we're saying. I mentioned that verse before. In Mark 1, 15, it says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Then you have Acts. This is Paul, Acts 20, 21. I testify to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can tell people they need to believe in Christ to be saved. That's fine. I think it's better when you're sharing the gospel with somebody to talk about both repentance and faith. Repentance, sorrow for, for, for your sin, a change of attitude towards sin, and wanting then, hey, the answer is Christ. Turning from your sin and turning to Christ, that's, that's, that's the heart of the gospel. One more verse here. This is John 6, 40. It says, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. I, and this simplicity, and that's the thing about the Gospels, is verse after verse pounds this point home that the Gospel, the salvation, and how to be saved is so simple, you believe. But again, as I've seen, we've looked at what, eight points there, there's a little bit of complexity. And as, 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 as believers, we need to understand a little bit of the depth of what these things mean. Then we learn that the person who believes in him will not perish. It says in John 10, 28, I gave eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And, of course, you look at those verses, you analyze that verse. If somebody has eternal life, how long does eternal life go for? <laughs> Eternity. That means they're not going to perish. You can't lose your salvation. If you have eternal life, and how do we get eternal life? He gives it to us. He gives it to us, and we're not going to perish. The word perish literally means to destroy. As I said before, sometimes you hear this word and it's a nice, softer way to, you know, some people use perish as the word to refer to death. Oh, that person perished. The strength of the word must be understood. It means to be destroyed and really it's eternal destruction. Because when we think of the word destroy in our own understanding, destroyed, it's gone, it's done. (laughs) Not with this word perish here. It means to destroy people who reject Christ and stay in their sins that the course of their life will be judged and will be punished for their sins. They will perish because they've not turned to Christ for mercy. That's what's happened. They've not done it. Listen to these verses. These are powerful. Some of the most powerful ones are on this subject. This is Jesus talking. Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire. That's what it says. Some people talk about hell not being a place of fire. What's it say there? Into the eternal fire. Then it goes on to say, this is, that's 41 of Matthew 25. This is 46. These will go away into eternal punishment. Eternal fire is eternal punishment. You can't get around that. You have eternal fire, eternal death, eternal punishment. The next phrase of that verse, that last verse of Matthew 25 says, but the one, but the one who believes in, no, the one who believes in me has eternal life. So he's talking about this eternal fire, this eternal punishment. This is strong language, but it's the truth. It's the kind of truth that a lot of churches don't talk about very much, and even good churches, but it must be talked about, and it's such an important, important subject and sobering subject. You either have everlasting life or you perish. Nothing in between. No, no, nothing in between. No limbo. 
no purgatory, one or the other. Which again is a sobering thing. I, I talked before, was it, what, I, what was it? The stat, four, every four seconds somebody dies in this world, every one minute, what, what did I say, it's 200? You think about that, if the majority of people are, are not saved, wow, every minute 150 people going into the fire. This is sobering. And when you look at people in life, and whether you know you might watch TV or a movie, you know. In fact, I was watching a movie the other night, and there's an old, we like old movies. And I was thinking, all these people in this movie, this is a movie from the 30s, early 30s, all these people are gone. And where are they spending eternity? It was sobering. And we hear what they're saying, oh, it's a funny movie or whatever, drama, whatever it is. Man, they're gone. I mean, we must be sobered by this truth of people perishing. Finally, we understand that the person who believes in Christ receives eternal life. The phrase eternal life appears 15 different times in the Gospel of John. It's, a, it's what I call a big phrase, a broad phrase. Eternal life, on one hand, sums up your life as a Christian. It, it sums it up, okay? And I'll explain that in a minute. So what can we say about it? First of all, let's define eternal life. John 17, 3 says this. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Bottom line, eternal life is what? It says know God and Christ. It's a relationship. It's not having things. We, in this culture, we have things. It's a relationship. You all understand relationships with people. We're talking about a relationship with the living God. That's, that's what it is. And this relationship, I'll give you a number of words here, very simply. It's an eternal relationship. It goes on forever and ever. It's a spiritual relationship. It's spiritual at its core. It's a personal. And I love this. When I I became a Christian, I I, I thought about this. It's personal. It's it's me and God. It's me and Christ. Nobody else has this relationship. It's just me and him. That's it. Isn't that great? It's it's eternal. It's spiritual. It's personal, personal. And you need it. You need it. Okay? You need to have this relationship and finally, finally, on this relationship, it's, it's most important and most satisfying relationship that there is. Think about that. We, we always like to be, and we're tempted to be satisfied by different things or this or that, the other. Christ satisfies. God satisfies. The Spirit satisfies. That's where it's at. It's a relationship where there's communication and fellowship. I like this verse here. This is, I, I've shared this so many times, but I just love it. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and the Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode. What does that mean? I'm not sure. If you love the Father, love the Son, if you obey them, we will come to you and make our abode. It's talking about our relationship. And I think this is talking about the heavens, the future. I mean, I think it relates to now, but I think it relates for all eternity talking here about eternal life. It's a relationship where you share in the life of God and Christ. Second Peter 1.4 says it simply says, as believers, we are to be partakers in the divine nature. I like how it says it there, the divine nature. And you, you start thinking about this. Here you go longer in the day, you know, and you're doing your work or working out in the yard or whatever you're doing. And I can now at this time partake in the divine nature. I can share in the very life of God and Christ, this spiritual life. And it's, it's so magnanimous, but it's, so, it's hard to get your, 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 your brain, your head around this. What does this mean? 
but, but this is what God wants, and this is what he wants with him. The Lord says, I'm not sure what this means to partake of the divine nature, but I want it. That's the kind of prayer you should have. I'm not sure what this is all saying, but I want it. He'll help you understand it. He'll help you understand it. It's a relationship where you experience love and joy and peace and goodness and mercy and hope and power and purpose, all those things and more. All that you need in life is found in eternal life, having this personal, eternal relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. The way to experience eternal life as we live on this earth is by continuing continuing to believe in Christ, by continuing to trust in God, by continuing to depend on the Spirit, by continuing to walk by faith. And so that's important to understand. Because sometimes we, you know, we, and this happens with me sometimes. I'll be with the Lord and really encouraging time in the morning. I'm sitting out there in my chair in the back porch and, boy, I was encouraging. Boy, I was really good reading the Word and praying and, and being comforted by the Spirit. That was really good. Then you go out and there's some trial. Oh, <laughs> Well, no, you need to continue. It's not a matter of, okay, this experience that you had, this good time with the Lord in the morning is going to just carry on. It's good. God gives it to you. You have to continue. It's a daily walk by faith. That word walk is good. We've talked many times about walking with God like Enoch walked with God. Before we are saved, we look to ourselves. We look to others. We look to the world for love and meaning, right? But now we know that it's from God, and we really can sum this up then as eternal life. That's what it is. Okay, that's John 3.16. There's a lot. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. It's, it's a powerful verse. We continue on. Back to John 3, verse 17. We'll work our way through these next few verses. John 3.17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is important. In fact, I'll just mention this briefly. I, I'm, I'm continually working on blogs. In fact, you can always pray that God leads me what to share. But what I'm working on now is, is, is you look at the world, and I'll just say this. I wasn't planning to, but... You look at the world and the problems and the injustice and, whoa, what's going on? The two-tiered justice. What's going on? This is not good. That, take care of that. Take care of that problem. Where's the law system? Where's the government? You know, what are they doing about this? You know? And so you think that that's true. The government should do their job. They should do their job. But what's our perspective as Christians? What's our perspective? I'm not saying we can't think about governments doing their job and more justice. What's our job as Christians? It's verse 3, 17. What did Jesus come here for? What did it say? Not to judge the world, but the world might be saved. You, you need to think about offering mercy. I mean, here's the point. Is, is you might be thinking about this one person out there who's done maybe one or two crimes or maybe five or ten crimes, whatever. We are talking about how God wants to give mercy to a person for his, all his crimes, his thousands and tens of thousands and millions of crimes. Do you see the, see the difference? Not, oh, man, we need justice for that. No, I've got to get justice. I'm not saying you shouldn't think that way a little bit, but that shouldn't be the priority in your mind, your heart. Your priority should be what Christ said here. You want to be one who is thinking about people and how they can be forgiven and saved from their sins. It says, uh, it says in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to offer 
mercy. During this church age, God's purpose for people is to tell them about their sin and show their sin so they can have mercy, so they can receive eternal life, so they can be forgiven. That's it. That is it. The time will come. That's church age. That's church age talk. John 3, 6, 17. During this time, we want to be offering mercy to people and not expect them to be judged. Okay? The time will come. At the end of this age, you know the story, Christ will come back, the rapture of the church, and then he'll judge the world, all the people in the world. He will judge this whole world. He'll judge the sinners in this world. We understand that. That judgment's coming. And we can pray for that. You know, it says, our Father, who art in heaven, you know, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. You know, I pray you come because I want to go home and I want you to judge this world. That's fine. You can pray that. So does says the prayer right there. But again, your purpose at this time is so important. And of course, we know, as he said, we were all unrepentant sinners who don't repent of their sins, then the course of their life here on this earth will be judged for their sins and will be punished eternally in hell. John 3.18, sometimes a little bit difficult to understand, but let's go through this. He who believes in him is not judged, and he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So we understand, he who believes in Christ won't be judged, won't perish, will be one who has eternal life. The one who doesn't believe in Christ, who doesn't turn to Christ for mercy, is one who has been judged already. Okay? God sees their heart. He knows they're not going to repent. He's judged already. That's how God thinks. Of course, God, you know, he's, he's not bound by time. <laughs> he's the eternal God. He sees everything in one. Right there. Okay? So, the unbeliever then won't actually be punished during his life under that is for his sins. Yeah, unbelievers might go through some tough times. There might be some elements of justice here and there. It says, does say in Romans at one eighteen, the wrath of God's being revealed every day. We understand that. But but the justice, the judgment we're talking about here is future. Okay. And this judgment then will be consummated. It will be finally carried out in in in, in the ages to come. As I sum up in millennial kingdom age is hell for a thousand years. And after that's the lake of fire forever and ever. That is this judgment that we are talking about. It says the unbeliever has not believed the name of the only begotten Son of God. Remember that word name? Very important. New Testament, Old Testament. It speaks of the totality of Christ's being. It speaks of who he is and what he does and what he's like. And so the unbeliever has not believed in who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior. Not believed in what he did, that he, was, that he was one who then died for sins. He has not done that. And because he has not believed, ever believed in the whole course of his life, I mean, you think about it, the most important thing an unbeliever can do during the course of life is what? It's to believe in Christ. That's it. But he's not done it. And, and, I, and we know God, and we, we sometimes wonder how it works, because I think of my family, my relatives. I have six siblings, and I know one's saved. I don't, I'm not sure about the rest, but, but I know this. I know I'm down in Florida. They're up in the Midwest, Illinois, and Iowa, Nebraska. I know that God works, and you pray for people, and you understand that. You know that, man, God's doing certain things during the course of their life, giving them opportunity to turn to Christ, and it's not just that they didn't like what I said to them. It's like, they've had all kinds of opportunities, and they didn't believe. They didn't believe. That's didn't have what's called real and genuine faith, or what some people call saving faith. Second John seven says this way: says many deceivers have gone out into the world; those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. An unbeliever is one who does not acknowledge Christ as coming in the flesh, God coming in the flesh. Else, 
I was talking to Doris earlier, and she was born back in the 30s. She was raised in a United Methodist Church. If most of you, I think, well, maybe most, I don't know. A lot of you probably know that the United Methodist Church isn't what you call a real solid church these days. Okay? It's turned. And it was back in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s that these kind of churches and many other churches, Lutherans and Methodists, Presbyterians, went south. And it's because of this. They did not acknowledge Jesus Christ as being the Son of God is coming in the flesh. That's what happened. But I want you to turn to 1 John 4. And this, I really like how it sums it up here. You'll, you'll see, you're, you're hearing a lot of John verses today, aren't you? A lot of John, a lot of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. I'll just read through this quickly, but I like this, how it says it. It says, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And I'm talking about you, talking about some church. What's, what kind of spirit does that church have? Is that a spirit of the devil or a spirit of God? By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Small a. Antichrist. People who don't believe that, who deny that, are little antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. So you see it's coming. There's a, there's a big A antichrist. You're from God, little children, and haven't overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's a verse to memorize. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I love that. The black and whiteness of John. Eternal life or perish. Spirit of truth, spirit of error. That is it. And we live in a real muddy world. I mean, I tell you, as you see this more and more, people use words in all kinds of ways, and it can be very, very deceptively. So it's important we understand what people are saying and what's true and what's air. Next, John three nineteen. Back to John three. John three nineteen says, "This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil." The word "light" refers to Jesus. Of course, we read about this in John chapter um, one. The Lord, light refers to Jesus and that he is the truth and that he's holy. Both aspects there. And Jesus' light came into this world, into this evil world. It says in John 1 that he came to his own. That is, he came into Israel, to his own people. He was a Jew. He came to all these other Jews. That was his primary focus. And, and he came into this world and he was God in the flesh. I mean, one of the most amazing Truth to hard to comprehend. Jesus is both God and man. He came into this world. He was both God and man. Incarnation. You know, it, it's, it's incredible. God made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. So, so that's what happened. And, and so crowds came to see him. Why did they come to see him? Well, he was, he was the best teacher in the world. And so he said, you know, like interesting teacher. Let's see what he has to say. And he did quite a few miracles. Eh? Let's see if he does some miracles today. And, and, of course, you know, he also at times gave out free food. So it was, it was, you know, back then where there wasn't much to do, you know, people, I remember about 100 years ago, one of the big things in the country was the circus. 
And so you're out there in the Midwest, and the circus comes to a neighboring town. Man, we got to go to the circus. That's the biggest thing happening. This was a circus for the people back then, for a lot of them. This is Jesus. Let's go see. Let's go see Jesus, see what happens. It was like a circus for many, and it wasn't good. What happened? Most of the people rejected him because he spoke against their sin, and they did not like that. I want you to turn to John 7, 7. He says it simply here. John 7, verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. If you know somebody who's an unbeliever and you're talking to them and you're nice to them, you're friendly, you do good things, you know, and you hang out and have a meal together, fine. When you start telling the truth about their sin, then you see where they're at. Then you see is God really drawing them or are they really not interested in this gospel. That's it. That's the difference. Be nice to people. Love them. Sure. Do all these things. Give gifts to them. But tell them the truth about their sin. They rejected them. The main reason people reject Christ is because they love their sin. They love their worldly and fleshly things that they can do, but they don't love Christ who hates their sin. Got it? Very simple. Most people want their sin. They don't want God telling them that they're sinners. They don't want that that they're not to sin? I mean, I can't sin anymore? <laughs> Whoa. They're not to sin or, or else they'll perish and go to hell? They don't like that kind of language, not at all, and that they need to repent of their sin and believe in Christ. And we know they love their darkness because of their deeds. That's what we understand, because of their sinful actions and their sinful words. You know a sinner by what he says and by what he does. It's interesting what it says in, in 1 John. This is um, 1 John 3, 9 and 10. It says, The children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Again, one of those black and white. There's children of God, children of God, and there's children of the devil. And who they are, it's obvious. And you, you, you know this. If you, if you work in an office or if you have a family gathering and you're with people for a little bit of time, you can sort of figure it out. You, not that you absolutely know for certain. You've got a good idea, and here it says it's obvious. You spend enough time with people, and you're seeing by what they say and what they do, you sort of know where they're at. Okay? That's, that's what he's saying. And it says, and so, people reject Christ. They love their sin. They don't love Christ. You know a sinner then by what they say and by what they do. But in the future, all sinners will face the judge. It's, I, I'm not exactly sure why it works this way. But we understand what's going on. We now live in this church age. This church age will come to an end. It'll be the day of the Lord. Some Jews will be saved. Christ will come back on this earth. He'll go to uh, Jerusalem. The world will be what I call remodeled. Okay, there's different verses that talk about this is going to be a better place. In fact, it says that the animals, you can have the lion lie down with the lamb. So it's going to be a different kind of place and all kinds of things are going to grow. It'll be a wonderful, wonderful place to live. And, and millennial kingdom, Christ is reigning over the earth. That's what's going on. But the, the big judgment time is not to the end. So you have this church age, you have the rapture, and Christ comes back in the millennial kingdom when we are reigning with Christ, we're in our new glorified bodies. At the end of that time is the great white throne judgment. That's, and turn to Revelation chapter 11. We'll just read this. This is, to me, I have this probably two or three sections, but this is one of those two or three sections that's most sobering to me. This right here. 21, 11 to 15. 20. Not 21, 20. 
Revelation 20, 11, 15, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great, and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Death and Hades, see, Hades, that we're referring to hell, that thousand-year period of time where people go or where people are even now. People that have died now, apart from Christ, are in what's called Hades, okay? But there's something else coming. Gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. So the judgment is then, end of this thousand years, because this whole chapter mentions the millennial kingdom. I think six, seven times it's mentioned as a thousand years. So there's a thousand years, and then you have this this, this event here. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Isn't that interesting? Hell's thrown in the lake of fire. So everything's now this lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is sobering. I don't know if any of you have been to a, a court case. I've done jury duty a few times and been there. It's, it's sobering. I mean, everybody's, you know, judge stands up, you stand up, you know, you, everybody's quiet and your phones are off and everything, you know, and, and what the judge says you do, it's like, whoa. I mean, we have a really, probably one of the best justice systems. I, I talked about injustice before. <laughs> On one hand, there's a lot of injustice, but when you get out to the more of the micro level, you, you go to different courthouses in different cities, you know, the, the judges are doing a pretty good job. I'm talking more of the macro big picture, but, and they're there, you know, and then, you know, there's a jury, and the jury comes back, and they read the verdict, and then the judge, you know, pronounces guilty or innocent, you know, and if they're guilty, you know what happens then, right? You've, have you been there? I mean, this is for criminal cases. They get the handcuffs, and they walk out. He says, well, this is heavy. But here we're talking about, <laughs> this is your life, you're before Christ. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know the timing and stuff. I don't know if everybody gets, you know, a few seconds with Christ. I don't know. All I know is they're there, and their deeds were found lacking, because it's not by works, and they're there, and maybe they try to defend themselves, but God gives the ver- Christ gives the verdict, rather, pronounces them guilty, tells them that they're guilty, and then what happens after that? They're cast into the lake of fire, that eternal fire, that eternal punishment we talked about before. It, it is so, so sobering. And you need to think about this. You think about life. This, this should affect how you live your daily life, this truth here. Because we're here for just 70, 80, 90 years or something, something like that. And then that's it. All eternity. Eternal life or perish. That is it. Back to John. We continue 320. 320. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. People who, who do evil, who sin... Hate the light. And hate is a strong word, but it's true. Sinners hate God and Christ. That's how it is. They don't love God or Christ. And, and again, you might talk to some unbeliever. You know, he goes to church, a nice person who says he loves God, maybe in pray or maybe read a few verses in the Bible or something. If they're not saved, if they're not bowed to Christ and trusted in him for their salvation, they hate the light. They hate God and Christ. That, that's what we're seeing right here. Another reason people don't come to God is because they're afraid of their sins. You know the example you've heard this many times. I'm sure a kid's child's there and his parents say, we're going out for the evening. 
be a good boy, Johnny be a good boy, whatever, Billy be a good boy, and you know, the kid does things you ought not to do, and the parents are coming back, and they, he hears them come to the door, and, and he's afraid. That what? That they might somehow find out what he did, and that sin then be exposed, and that he then be punished. And that, that's the point here, is, is for some people, and not all, some people are so calloused. I, I, I hear about people doing evil things, and it's just ugh, sickening. So I'm so callous that, you know, they just go along, do whatever they want to do. That's more and more of what our culture is doing, this whole sensitivity to sin and this morals and stuff, and it's, it's just not there as much. But, but the point is, in general, there, there is this, where people are afraid to be found out, afraid that their sin will be exposed. It says in 1 John 4.18, it says that perfect love casts out all fear. So if you know the love of God, of Christ, then that will cast out all fear. We understand that. Finally, then go to John 3.21. He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. As Christians, then we come to the light. We're not afraid to come to the light because we know that we're forgiven. And, and, and if in your relationship with God there is a sense of fear with your relationship with God, then something's not quite right. God wants you to grow up a little more. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid at all. Now, if you're doing things wrong, there needs to be a conviction of sin, but that's different than being afraid. Okay, you don't need to be afraid. You go to God. We had that song, 1 John 1, 7. You, you go to God, and you freely go because, you know, he loves you. He forgives you. Christ paid it all. It's all been taken care of, okay? You also go to God because here it talks about this person who's practicing the truth. He comes to God because he wants to know what God wants him to do. In fact, I was reading this verse and trying to memorize it. It's 1 John 4 today. It says, this is the will of God that I finish the work he gave me to do. Not quite it, but that's it. If God has a will for you, and you want to finish the work he gives you to do. And as Christians, you're all here alive. You all could walk here today, you know. And if you're alive, God's got work for you to do. You need to practice the truth. And you go to God because you want to know what he wants you to do. Then you do what he wants you to do because you want to please God. That's all we're saying here. That's, that's, that's it. That's very simple. Final point is important that what we do is because God not only tells us what to do, but he gives us the power to do it. John fifteen five. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Philippians four thirteen. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Sometimes God gives us assignments, and I, this happens to me. I says, God, I don't like this assignment. I've had a few recently. I don't like this. I don't like this. But one, I won't go on the details. I, I, I did it. I said, wow, this turned out pretty good. This turned out really good. This is quite amazing. This is wonderful. This is a great story. And so I hope you're seeing. We've had, what, I'm not sure if it's three times or four times. We've got another probably couple to go. Helping to see the breadth and the depth and the importance of this truth about your salvation. There's many. It's, it's simple in one hand. It's as simple as John 3, 16, that one verse, and there is so much more. And that's why you have it explained, and more extensively, I would say, in the Gospel of John than any other Gospel. And so we'll continue in this John's Gospel next week, move into John chapter 4, and John 3, and then 4, and by God's grace, learn more about the Gospel. I want to finish with just two verses, John 4, 13, and 14, which we'll look at next week. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst again, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Let's pray.
Dear Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word, which is really so clear. I mean, it's, it's, it's black and white. And I love this. I love things that are black and white and not sort of fuzzy or muddy. Thank you that you do this for us. And thank you for your love for us. I pray that maybe more than anything, pray that we understand this truth more and pray that we comprehend and know more the love of God. As it says in 1 John 4, 16, we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Might each of us be like that, that we more and more grow in this great love, this wonderful love, this needed love, this most important love every day, this relationship. Because if we don't experience this love, we'll be going after other things. We'll be going after idols, whatever that might be in this world today. So help us, Lord, to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to spend the time with you, to read your word, to be ones who are obedient children, and then you will bless us. And as it says there in John 14, 21, you will come, you and the Father, and make your abode with us. And, and, and it's really and intensify that relationship even more in a most wonderful and encouraging way. Beautiful. This is, I can't, can't believe it. And, and just pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be deceived because it's so easy. The flesh is out there and sin is out there. It's all over the place. And just help us to get time with you and look to you and and be encouraged by you and your love and your truth, all these things. Thank you for this church for everyone here. Lord, to be here today, I pray that you give us your grace and peace and strength, Lord, and to be ones who do love you and then do what you want us to do. I pray you help this, this legal lease process to continue on. We ask you for that. I pray for Carol. Thank you for the surgery that was successful this past week, Lord, and, and thank you that she's healing up. And you've given them grace and peace and, and the prayers that Bruce uh, told us. They, they were answered about um, nothing wrong with lymph nodes or no cancer was found. Thank you so much for that. And just continue to pray for them. I pray for um, Betty's son here. The surgery was put off again for different reasons. I just pray that that would be resolved sooner than later. But just thank you for each one here. Lead us again as we go on from here, Lord, for your glory, for your purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.